Um, I'm new to this kind of a seminar, and uh, what I understand that most of you have a different background than what I have. So as I said, I'm a biologist uh, from the Department of Zoology. So today I'm going uh, to try to talk about um, what I've studied all my life, uh, uh, evolution of cooperation, including altruism and cheating, but uh, not on humans, not on mammals, but much, much smaller organisms. So just a little bit, very briefly, about my background. So I started, I started an undergrad working on social insects, always been fascinated. Social insects have an amazing display of uh, behavior, you know, altruisms and, and, and so on. So they are, they are capable to have uh, thousands of individuals, and, but a very strict hierarchy. And after that, I moved to something a little different. There was social amoeba. So even if uh, people doesn't think so, there are another organs that is extremely sociable, but you know we'll talk um, about that some, uh, later. Then you know microorganisms, insects. Why not mix both? My first postdoc was about um, interaction uh, between fungus, metarhizium, and uh, ants, and how it was changing their behavior and so on. What I'm doing now um, under the supervision of Stuart West, I'm working with uh, another social, but this time a bacteria. Pseudomonas um, aeruginosa, that uh, is a pathogenic bacteria, but once again, it does a lot of social stuff. So, this is kind of, for someone that doesn't know much about biology, seems like very, very wide. So, why do you jump from what it, they used to be kingdoms, you know, fungus, bacteria, animals? But if you're, re if you're really um, careful, I always keep the same question that is, uh, how does cooperation evolve? And um, I like, I'd like during my career to have a vertical approach. So having uh, several model organs <coughs> to try to see if the rules apply, the natural selection apply always in the same way. So, but today I'm not gonna only talk about, uh, about bacteria, of course. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a more generic, uh, general uh, point of view of the evolution of, uh, of cooperation. So I'm trying to explain how the field where that I work on went uh, try to go to the bottom, to the genetic, to the black box of the instruction the organisms have about uh, social behavior and how this going on the way up can actually be used for, for um, understand better the behavior of higher animals and even humans with all the ethical and, and the law and the rules that uh, they are so, that we all are familiar with. So, but. So here we go, cooperation. We all know what cooperation means. So uh, humans cooperate all the time. We know that we are able through uh, mm, social behaviors to achieve much more that uh, single individuals will do. That's why cooperating is so good. We can definitely do a lot. And you know, if you think about since we, were, we came out of the caves, we have been able to change the environment, change the entire planet in an incredible way. We have been able to, to, to build shelter, to reach a level of technology um, unthinkable until you know, a few centuries ago. Well, pretty much, you know, I'm sure most of you can think about hundreds of examples of cooperation and what you might have achieved, but you know, we are not the only animal that cooperates. <coughs> I'm sure everybody's familiar as well with a lot of examples of animals that, you know, they, they tend to be in group, uh, to groom, uh, to protect uh, uh, brutes uh, to guard uh, to change the environment as well as well as uh, hunting and uh, you know the cooperation if you if you think about it, it's pretty much the same they do the same things 
that we do. And, um, but another strong example of cooperation, we can go, oh, okay, let's there. We can go even lower, so lower animals like the insect, like I mentioned before. But nevertheless, the array of cooperation, it is uh, highly complex and truly amazing. So I don't know if people are familiar with, uh, with uh, bee, for example, or ants, or wasp and termites. These are the social insects. They, they define themselves very different from the, all the other um, insects because they are capable of many tasks that other insects are not. So, for example, bees, like it's here in this, in this hive, they're they get to thousands, thousands of individuals. But the, the funny things, the weird things, that usually only one reproduce. And the others, they just work, they just help, but they just give up completely their chance to reproduce, try to help the queen to, ra to raise uh, the broods. And sometimes not only give up the reproduction, but also get, go through an incredible change in, uh, in uh, activity and shape. Mm -hmm. We have the honeypot ants, they pretty much, they they get stuff with uh, honey and they just pass it, uh, they just have, like big reservoir for other ants. We have a soldier that just, you know, spend all their life just guarding the nest and so on and so on. I will, uh, you know, talk about hundreds of examples. So now, cooperation is one thing. To give up entirely your reproduction and your progeny is another different thing. I mean, how can, this is pure altruism. So how can that be selected? So why should I do something? to help someone else having kids, or brood, or you know, whatever animal we're talking about. How the information that tell what I'm doing can pass through the next generation, I don't exist anymore. This was actually a really big problem. Darwin itself said that uh, this could be a big blow to his uh, theory of natural selection. Because of course, natural selection say that uh, is the survival of the fittest. And of course, if you are a worker, if you give up everything, you're not going to be fit. When we talk about fitness, it's measured as a number of progeny that you have to next, to next uh, generation. So nowadays, we know um, that there is a solution to that. Darwin itself start, uh, started to think about that. But it wasn't until the 50s, uh, thanks to Hamilton, that this was uh, a real solution was theorized. and then. With empirical example, we found out that actually seems that to be what's happened. Pretty much uh, the Hamilton theory was in, it's called inclusive fitness theory or kin selection theory. You know, the, the two terms are the same. Pretty much states that, without going too much in details of the theoretical parts, that um, natural selection uh, tend uh, to make uh, the individual maximize its fitness. That means, like, doesn't matter the gene I pass to the ne next generation only through me. But it's very important, uh, also taking in consideration the one I pass through my relatives. So think about it. If you, if you have a son and a daughter, you pass uh, pretty much, you pass exactly 50% of your information. But if you have uh, a niece or a nephew, they have, they, they got share of your information as well. Other scientists later on said that, you know, I could give up my life to save three brothers. They will actually help to spread more on my genes, more the information. That's how national selection work. And um, so thanks to the reason we, we start to understand that the basic of altruism and cooperation rely on the present or relatedness. <coughs> so higher a group is relatedness, most likely is that uh, a act of altruism can actually be selected, can be useful. 
and can be reiterated then in the future. And the, 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 the organism that benefits from that can actually help your gene to pass through the next generation. If anybody has any questions, feel free to interrupt me in the way. I mean, if you get confused. So at this point, uh, pretty much after Hamilton, a new field of biology um, started. Is it's called sociobiology. And uh, until now, we had a lot of problems explaining co behaviors like, as I said, altruism <coughs> in insects. And, uh, and what Darwin said until uh, the, we start thinking it to be a more genetic about <coughs> relatedness and degree of relatedness, what Darwin said was something that kind of makes sense, but we did not have the tool to prove it theoretically or empirically, relatively, but you know, <coughs> at least not really theoretically. And um, these rules, uh, we later, later has been found out, that it works not only at level in sets or animal, but pretty much at every level of biological organization. So, until uh, for other 40 years after Hamilton theorized uh, his uh, theory of included fitness, there wasn't much study about how genetic is responsible for the social traits. That is simply because it was so difficult. Our, um, our behaviors, so like animals, so like insects, it was really difficult to get to, to find a direct line from what's happening at the genetic point of view to the behavior. That's what we define, you know, the genotype, the amount of genes, and the phenotype, the expression, that is, uh, is the one that goes to, to in, in the, the environment. So, for genetic was pretty much crystallized at watching um, study the DNA uh, Clicker Watson helix. But uh, what's really changed was that um, was put a big effort on trying to understand this correlation. And even if we start an understanding with lots of other theoretical work, not only our relation um, cooperation can be. Um, help by relatedness, but also from um, equally be uh, expressed uh, with uh, individuals they are not related. So there is a huge branch of game theory that I will not go into. That I'm sure some of you will is uh, is uh, familiar with. The point is we still need something. We still need it really prove that genetic genes uh, cause social traits. And which are the best organisms to figure it out? They are microorganisms. Microorganisms, even lots of people don't know that, they have an incredible array of cooperative behavior. Something like until a few decades we didn't know. Of course, uh, you know, since lots of microorganisms that are pathogenic, so they've been studied for centuries, from the time, you know, penicillin and so on and so on. We always study how they work, which is their physiology. But we never really look at, like, how do they interact? I mean, do they cooperate when they actually get pathogenic? And we found out, like, yes, they really do. And, uh, for our purpose, they turn out to be incredibly useful. They, of course, at, as any other modern organisms, they have their disadvantage and their advantage. Disadvantage is like, uh, it's very simple. I mean, their social behavior compared to ours, for example, is, uh, is much more direct. They, of course, they, they don't think, they don't have conscious what they do. But on the other hand, we are able to study their behavior without, without all the baggage that culture and uh, and knowledge can uh, can carry, so it's pretty much just gene <coughs> behavior. And um, what we were looking for was like, are there genes, specific genes that code for social traits, for for behavioral traits? 
And, um, you know, as I said, people have been working with those for centuries. We have a lot of techniques. We have lots of molecular, genetic. So we're just a matter of taking it and apply, asking different questions. So I'm just, I just going to, to go through a, just a couple of, of examples of, uh, of these organisms. I'll just pick uh, some that are the most um, striking, interesting. And uh, these are the behaviors that they show. So, you know, if you were reading something like this, you think like, yeah, I'm talking about mammals, something like this. They can forage in group, or they can protect themselves. But it's very important they have a com complex network of communication. That's very important in any social interaction. If you don't talk with the person you cooperate with, you don't know what, what does this person want to do or which is his goal. It's difficult to articulate things. And then words like altruism and cheating that some of you will, might not agree mm. in the way I'm going to use them. But once again, we are not trying to anthropomorphize the, this um, <coughs> study. We, just, uh, we are using terms that um, express something that we can relate to, we can easily understand. Mm. So even when we talk about altruism for, for um, bees, you know, of course, it's not the same concept of altruism that we use as human, but you know, makes sense, and we can, uh, we can apply. So the first organism is Mixococcus santos. It's not the most charismatic, but nevertheless, it's really interesting. It's a soil bacteria. It's not pathogenic, but um, just a small little microbe that stay on the soil. And the way it forage, it just release, uh, secrete uh, some enzyme that uh, go outside in the surface and uh, degrade whatever other small bacteria that they feed with. So one single cell will have a very low efficient rate of production, really just a little bit, wouldn't really be much. But uh, they evolve a very interesting behavior that a lot of cells, they all Side, go one by side, really close, like nanometer close to each other. And once they start gliding, moving all together like a wolf pack, that's the way they've been defined, and releasing these, uh, these um, enzymes all together at the same time and creating these kind of waves. Oops, waves again. That are visible by eyes. These are just cells that move. So that's the way they. They eat all together, and you, you know, you say like a big deal. If you think about it, it is a big deal because they have to go all to one next to each other. They have to decide when they go together. They have to decide how many they are. They have to decide how much to to produce of the enzyme. And once they put it, how many bacteria were we seeing in that video? Oh, something. Like, these will be something like hundred thousands. So I mean, the bacteria is definitely not visible. This is uh, it's not the microscope. So you can see on the on the plate. But uh, definitely, so definitely on that count, they could get to two million. It's depend. I mean, there's not really structure in this one. They're just glide, so they will glide a few thousand, like a uh, hundred thousand on millions. So I can tell, I can tell you. Okay, I eventually get out of this video. Okay, so but their behavior doesn't end up here. For what 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 they do once the food is depleted. At this point, they have to hibernate, let's say. So they have to mm. pass the winter until they find new food. So they, they, they form spores. Now, a lot of bacteria do spores, a lot of organisms. But what they do, they just agglomerate all together. And they form these big sorrows that uh, help uh, the future dispersion so has protected. So once again, they just don't eat together. They decide to go and, uh, and sleep to together. So it's, it's a much more efficient way of doing things. And you have to understand that the amount of information that is necessary to, to, to have uh, uh, something like that. 
Now, something a little more charismatic, but a little nastier. So this is a dinoflagellata that is uh, pretty much a little protozoa. It is uh, little green things that you find in lakes in North America. And uh, as a similar way of eating, so I have to secrete something, toxin, but uh, it feed of much bigger prey on fishes. And you understand that this is just probably some micro, so you need a lot of this to make a millimeter. But what they do, so think about, they can release, once again, toxin at this point. They're not a different kind of ants than one before. But can you imagine how many would you need to kill a fish? Just one fish, you will eat a lot of them. And they will all releasing at a different time of the population was low. They wouldn't be able to achieve anything. So what they do, they are able to sense how many they are. And once they realize sending little molecules up and go, until they realize that they are something like in the order of millions on the lake, they release all at the same exact moments, all their toxin, and you know, make, kills a lot of fishes, and creates sore, and then they are able to eat off the sore. So how some, such a small can have such a big impact on the environment is quite, uh, it's quite striking. So it's not really pathogenic for humans, but apparently someone did an experiment and stick on uh, someone's arms, and yes, it's uh, also red cells. So I mean, technically it could be pathogenic as well. So once again, what we found, we found that microorganisms fit together, uh, talk to, to each other, and, and, um, and coordinate the action. So we're almost done with the example. This is the organism that I'm studying right now, is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. This is quite nasty, because if your immune system is down, or you have cystic fibrosis, that an infection by this bacteria that is usually found everywhere, it's going to be even here in this room, can be really fatal. So, and it's quite pretty because actually under UV, your fluorescent is all, is all green. So we just have to be a little more careful when we work with that because, you know, it's still a pathogenic bacteria. But nevertheless, what does it do? Of course, you know, that social uh, behavior otherwise wouldn't be on these slides. So it's by itself, but quite similar, but uh, different. It squeaks something as well. So now, this is pathogenic, so it's easy to be found in the lungs, for example. And um, one big limiting factor in the growth of bacteria is the amount of iron. So for example, one of the reasons why when we are sick we get a little anemic, someone say that is evolutionary response of our body to, to hold the iron, to not let the bacteria to take it, because it will be really good for them. The problem is that the iron normally is not soluble, so you need uh, some kind of little chemical, little molecules to, to transform it, to reduce it. So what they do, they release these, uh, and uh, these little molecules that slither off of this little blue one, they release on the environment. So at this point, we have different concept because they're called, they are public goods. Once they are there, everybody can actually take them. So of course, if you think like a small group, all relative to each other, even all clonal, that means absolutely identical. But everybody advantage because you know you will help your family, so everybody will be very cooperative. Everybody will tend, by natural selection, of course, to help each other as much as they can. But if you put together different strains, different individuals, you might be the sum of them. For example, this white one, don't want to cooperate, don't want to produce them, and produce these little molecules is very costly. It's very expensive for the organisms. It, it pay a big cost for that. And so what's happening is that later on the efficiency of the entire group go down 
these organs take advantage of the situation without paying the cost. So, those are the, the ones that we call cheaters. Um, in some literature, in, a, in other fields like human science, they call also free riders. It's pretty much the, the, the concept that is, uh, is the same. And uh, you understand that, like, the next generation, since they didn't pay this tax of producing, there will be more, there will be um, in a higher frequency in the population. And if you keep going on and on, end up that nobody, nobody will produce them. So sometimes, this is a big threat to the collectivity. So think about if someone of you, 10% of this room, doesn't pay taxes. Of course, that advantage because they, they keep their money. And you know, they may become prosperous, they have more children, and then <coughs> we go to 80% of us that don't pay taxes. The entire system will collapse, we will not have no more money. It's pretty much that's the, the same concept. And that can create a big problem. Because at this point, we have another problem. We just, we not only struggle to find how altruism can be justifiable, but now we have another problem. What's happening with cheaters? Because every time that you have non-related organisms or parts that cooperate, remember that natural selection will always tend to maximize the fitness of the individual, not of the group. So everybody will tend, when they're non-related, of course, once again, to do their own business. And you know, most of the time, that really led to the to the um, collapse of the of the group. And uh, this, you know, is not just a pure theoretical experiment because if you think about cooperation, we talk about cooperation. We just don't talk about animal organs. Cooperation has has fueled every major transition in life. So if you think about when life actually was originated, we just had we had <coughs> small cells, but each cell is always done from little different particles, will be mitochondria, will be chloroplasts, they were all different. They all get together, they found out that cooperating uh, was, uh, was really paying off. And, and then they found out that mixing with other cells and produce and give shape to an organism was actually even better, so that we have this step. So it's the same things. They are all different level. Every time they cooperate, we have a higher level of selection. But still, there are going to be a conflict, because these are <coughs> in the middle by different uh, origin. So think about our body, okay? So I don't know if you are aware of it. We have two types of cells. One are somatic cells, that are cells from the skin, from the tissue, from everything that makes our body. They don't reproduce. They are pretty much exactly like the workers in a honey, um, a beehive. And then we have our germline. The germline are their cell that actually will produce uh, gametes, will produce uh, sperm or, or eggs in, um, in the female. And these are the only one, like the queen, that's uh, in, in the beast that actually will go to the next generation. So each cell is, is an individual. So the only thing they do, they just help us to go on in life, to be successful, so that the germline can produce. So it's a perfectly altruistic form. But why there is no conflict between them? Because they are genetically identical. Because during our, our life, we go through a bottleneck. That's you know, when we have uh, the embryo that starts only with one cell. And from that time on, we all have, uh, we all have um, mitosis, that the cells are cloned, they all together. So there is no conflict of interest. Now, I'm going to show you the last uh, example, where you see that this uh, conflict of interest still exists. So this is social amoeba. Very charismatic, really nice and fun to work with. It's called uh, Dictyosin and Discoidium. So pretty much uh, found ubiquitous uh, in, in every 
um, in every part of the world, pretty much were temperate area. And as you were watching this little bugger moving, this uh, during the vegetative stage, stage, they're just single cells. They just feed around on bacteria. They mind their, their business. They don't really interact with each other. So what's happening when the food is depleted? That's this trigger lots of things because you know. Remember that's one of the pressure for cooperation in life is when you need something. So when you're happy, you're plenty of food, plenty of sun, you don't care about. When actually the situation are really um, are really dangerous, that's when actually the selective pressure to get cooperative is higher. So what's happening? Like when okay, they start starving. One of the cells, the one that is most starved, start producing um, chemicals and they all start aggregating inside that. So about 10,000 to 100,000 cells, I know the number exactly for this one, uh, start to agglomerate and something happened. At the moment, uh, all the individual cells, they were just single organisms, became a multicellular organism. That is this slug. So pretty much the slug is an entire new organism, fully pluricellular, made up for all individual cells. So if we compare this to our body, for example, we are all clonal, they are not, because in this case, we, they just get all the cells that were nearby. So, what's the point? So the point is that these organisms can walk, uh, can, um, can cover much longer distance than the single cells, cells can go much faster, even can see light, so the cells on the front, they kind of like get vacuolated, so look a bit, little bit like a crystal in our eyes, so reflect the light, so this light know where is the light, so think about it, it's in the forest the soil, tend to go towards the top, so to avoid, avoid to, to get buried. And then he run away from ammonia towards oxygen. And once you reach a position that likes, this little slug actually differentiates, one of the most extreme case of differentiation nature. Pretty much 20% of the population will end up in this stock that is in which the cells just vacuolated, completely die, form a cellulose, and creates a pretty much um, a way for the rest of the 80% that would become viable spore, a way to get a lift from the soil. So the point is, is a dispersal mechanism. Spores, first of all, are much more resilient to resistance to, to um, dryness and harsh conditions. But on the other hand, they're on top of the of leaves, so any insects can get them or leaves and, and, and um, help them go around. You see that this machinery is in incredibly complex. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of genes are required to work in concert to make that happen. But once again, oh, no, not this. Once again, what's happening if they are not related? So they are two different. So we have the yellow and the blue cell get together. <coughs> and you found that when they go all through the process, only the blue, for some reason, are capable to go on the top and to survive, while the yellow, just cooperate, they, they do their life, but they just get nothing, they just pretty much disappears. So in this case, we, once again, we call these cheaters. Because during cooperation, they actually don't pay the fair share of what they should. Okay. Once again, if you have a problem with the terminology, you know, term, but you know, pretty much uh, this is the standard way you have to define something, and once again, you're using words that are common, are, is the best way to to, to make things less complicated. So, part of my work exactly was to work on cheater dictyostelium. And I found out that knocking out and destroying means just one single gene 
in the entire genome can produce one cheater. So if I take you know, one that is cooperative, I take one, I destroy one gene, and then other 80 I found out randomly in, in the genome, they actually became uh, not cooperative. So think about it. It took, uh, I don't know how many millions of years, it took hundreds of genes to work together, but you just knock out one and it's not cooperative anymore. The entire system fell down. So this was an example of that cheating. It's very easy to, to, to be generated, not only in these organs, but in many others. And it can really, uh, can really create a problem to the cooperative. You say, what's the point? We're getting there because we found that we found that there are solutions. So when uh, for the to understand cooperation when the uh, organisms are related, and also we found there is more problem that this cheating can actually destroy everything. But uh, nevertheless, uh, there exists uh, a lot of mechanisms. I'm not going to go through uh, through now to avoid the cheating taking over. It can be ecological system can be in other internal system, but this was just for you to, to understand that uh, cooperation is much more complicated things, even not only to achieve, but even to, to be studied. Stu so, this creates a big storm when we figured out that behavior social trait can just be ascribed to one single gene, for example, or to group of genes, because you know, who like to think that I'm sociable or not sociable just because I like one gene? So, but uh, the point of uh, the field of social biology was exactly this one, to try to take the information we know about the gene that, as I remember, is the black box of what we are, so uh, the, the body, the way we behave, it is coded in our genes. So take this information and um, um, search for experimental, experimental uh, um, data and uh, through genetic uh, and basis of human social behavior, we can actually find that this can be very useful also to determine the social action. So pretty much we can, we, we can have a link from genes to the way we be, organisms behave and, and so on. So anyway, so let's go to the human now. So we found out, we just explained that looking in sets and looking at microorganisms, you can find gene action, gene action. And when this came out, there was a huge amount of paper published about, I found a gene for everything. And this everything can be in, you know, I'm not a sociable person, I'm an aggressive person, I'm a leader, I like to cheat, I'm actually, you know, I like uh, uh, my sexual preference. So, but careful, because as biologists, it's also our job to say that human behavior is not genetically determined. So. Is this is a step that uh, has been attempted by Sphil because human is much more complicated than that. And I'll explain you why. So, how are we different? So, first of all, as, I told you, as you've seen, um, microbiology cooperates, cheats, and so on. Like, is it, is it ethical what they do? Do they do wrong? Th there is no, no way we can compare our way of action, our way to cooperate with, with lower organisms. So these are just model organisms for us to understand the mechanism of natural selection. And uh, same, so they, they can think and, uh, and we don't, yeah, exactly what I said, we don't accept the values. So, but, don't think it's healthy. Like if we take uh, these, uh, the example, so the condition that uh, 
that uh, make a, a cooperation evolve for microorganisms, you know, the, the related, the non-related. We found that uh, in, uh, when we actually start to cooperate with other organs, with, with other individuals, humans, we might have used the same rules. Because, for example, this is a case of uh, social selection. So Darwin talked about that. And you know, was the first that, you know, as, as if you guys were at the, Darwin, at the um, Dawkins talk, you know, today, the, they say how Darwin refused to talk about human because it was a, was a concept a little too delicate. But nevertheless, he says something about the evolution of cooperation. And uh, you know, you have two groups. We know that the natural selection uh, favorites the single individuals, the interests of the single individual. But if you have two groups, one does better than the other one, of course also the individual that inside that group does better. So, you know, are the same rules that we can apply to ants, to microbes, uh, and to animals. But Darwin also was the first one to, not sure the first one, but was, you know, the first biology that was trying to tackle this problem to admit that uh, humans have uh, much stronger, um, much uh, complex uh, um, level of, of things. So if I could read my slides, it would be actually easier sometimes. Um, yeah, exactly for the concept of moral sense, ethical, conscious. That's other animals who don't have it. But what are these? So are we, what's the point of law? What's the point of moral? What's the point of ethic? I mean, are these the consequences or the cause why we got so successful? When I say that we are so successful, is that we are pretty much the only organism in the entire world that is capable to coordinate, to cooperate within a huge amount of individuals that are not related to each other. Once again, if they are related, we already know it's a no-brainer. So just related, everything you do, you go for your benefit. But we are not related. There is a lot of mechanisms that can help, help to explain this. Um, I mean, if there's the game theory, there's mutualism, there's the reciprocal interaction. Pretty much the concept that many used to explain the, the cooperation in animals when they're not related is, uh, I help you but I want you to help me back and I will remember if you do that. But of course in humans, this took to another level because we are capable of remembering this interaction not on the short time, but also on a much further time. And uh, things like rewards, punishment, reputation, these are the base of what we call such a behavior right now. And uh, punishment, for example. So we were talking about cheating. So we found that you know there are some mechanisms that microorganisms take care of their cheater, but the way we do, we make law, we make a tradition, we make taboos, and we pretty much delegate to an institution that we all agree, more or less, or I mean, because is that we all agree on to take, uh, to do the job of uh, take care of the cheaters. So in this case, in this case, our cost um, is shared with with all the um, all the rest of the community, and it's a very efficient way because you don't have to take care of that. Some deaths, you call the police, you call, you know, the bells. And uh, that helped to take the mind off and the cost of the single individual. And another really, really important thing is the social information. So, language. Uh, you would say, like, yeah, animal talk, insects communicate, even bacteria can talk, as you say, they, they know, they are able to communicate with each other, they know how many they are, but that is on the moment. They are not able to leave instruction. What's happened 
um, you know, one hundred generations earlier about someone that was a cheater, but we can, we can talk, we can write, and uh, we use uh, we use language to form rep uh, reputation. That, as I showed before, that was one of the main points of, uh, of our social social strengths. So we're done. What, what I want to show you tonight, and then it's the end of the talk, is that. Cooperation is, is really complicated, and even if we, we behave in a different way, we have different rules, we, we have different ethics, we're still part of the process. They, came, they start from you know, single cells uh, to tissue, to organs, to, to bring us to, to cooperation. Cooperation is widespread, it's everywhere, and the law, they're always the same. We just took a step forward, and uh, that's probably made it a, the successful organs that we are now. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. And after the floor open for questions, uh, David Cody. Thanks, I, I don't have any issue with any of the mechanisms you suggest for promoting cooperation. That all seems very interesting and very plausible. But uh, there's a big gap, it seems to me, between the explanation of cooperation in general and ethics. Uh, and uh, it seems to me, you, know, you said at one point, humans created ethics to promote cooperation. But you know, there's no ethical principle which just says you should cooperate, and as far as I know, there never has been. And it's some of the things that we judge to be most obviously unethical are cooperative, and some of the things we judge to be most ethically admirable are refusals to cooperate, uh, and refusals in some circumstances specifically to altruistically cooperate. After all, the suicide bomber yeah. is behaving altruistically. Uh, the Holocaust, arguably the greatest evil of all time, the least moral thing. I can think of is a huge cooperative endeavour. <laughs> and I noticed right at the beginning you shove all these very positive cooperative activities and uh, promote uh, cooperation as this great thing, but you know, it, it's not necessarily the case. And it, it um, I mean, it, this just seems to me, um, I mean, I've heard um, a lot of people who do this kind of stuff say, you know, say this kind of thing, but it seems to me at best they're talking about. Our Neolithic ancestors promote these sort of pseudo-moral concepts which promote cooperation and condemn cheating, but that has nothing to do with the way we <coughs> think about morality now. Uh, morality at least as often serves precisely the opposite uh, purpose to prevent us from cooperating when we otherwise would. After all, lots of species already cooperate, why would we need help? So remember that I'm trying to make, uh, to, to look at this topic from a biological point of view. So of course uh, I what I don't want, I don't even know how to do, is actually to talk too much about ethics. I will just explain how certain behavior that we can consider ethical and ethic are actually present also in other organs and they have a, a base of genetic. Then, you know, many other implications of that is a little beyond my expertise. So I can tell you that uh, the origin of the cooperation, why, when I talk about cooperation, I say like the cooperation. I'm sure you're thinking about a very precise example, but we are cooperation, we are cooperative as, as a species, you cannot deny that. So we are the way we are now because we are cooperative, our ancestors were cooperative. So I was just trying to understand how the, the same rules that apply to everything else apply to us but then develop into ethic and law or something like that. So I didn't want to go further than that. So. And of course, there is entire field. I mean, we can go into philosophical and other things, but that's not what I do. I'm a biologist. I just try to understand the base. And uh, 
at the moment that uh, human get itself out of natural selection. That's a totally different thing. So we pretty much have. So we don't, you know, we oh, people that should have died for sickness they don't anymore thanks to many uh, things. And the same about the behavior. So we don't really follow anymore the rules that animal other animals do. That was my concept of difference. But yeah, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's true we don't follow the rules, but I mean, it's not clear that it's made us more cooperative, embracing moral rules. My suggestion is, if anything, it's done the opposite. And, but, uh, but okay, mm. what do you refer? Because when I talk about cooperative, I talk about now compared to one thousand years ago, one hundred generation, or you know, go down in time. So I start from uh, when we came out from the cave, we were tribe, and then go on to up now. That is my term of comparison. I'm not talking about you know what's happened during the religion war or something like that. This is a very, very specific and localized things, and so this starts with the generation. That's really changes. So do you see? I'm using a different uh, ladder here. I, so I we. No, no. I mean, I, I just it, it just seems to me okay. Maybe the Neolithic ancestors, you know, they 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 come up with our Neolithic ancestors come up with uh, you know cheat bad. Co cooperate good or something along those lines, uh, but those are not our moral concepts. They're not anything to do with, or if they are, they're, they're related to contemporary ethical thought in the way that I pretty much want to stop to there. Chemistry yeah. or uh, okay, I, wanna, so I, I, I think I, we'll move on. You know, just as I really <coughs> wanted to to stop right there when there was the evolution of these things, all everything that came out later, the the was the evolution of the ethic and the law. That's a different issue. So, but how do taboo um, arise, and you know how the first policy, something like this? I mean, we can go in many detail, and I'm sure that it wouldn't be enough time. But you know, I just want to prove that. I just want to show that you can still look from a natural selection point of view and still come out with the same origin of the behavior that we do now. I know. Okay, so I had a question Now we are, from my perspective, my point of view, especially in uh, in this country, I think that we we are in the moment where people are most cooperative. I mean, we just well, I don't really want to go into that. I'm sure we we, we will spark a big discussion. I I really don't know about that. I mean, I, I don't know how. I mean, I could tell my idea, but it's just based on my personal ideas. So thank you very much. Okay, uh, Gina. Um, you, you talked about two very different types of cooperation. One is among um, microorganisms, one is among human beings. 
And I guess I'm wondering if you could just tell me what you think the causal connection is between them. So one model I'm imagining, you think that there's these basic building blocks of cooperation that are present in microorganisms and more advanced organisms up the phylogenetic tree preserve those building blocks and add more, and that just keeps on going all the way up through the genetic lineage. The alternative conception is that there, there are these independent capacities for cooperation which are structurally similar, but actually come from totally different origins in evolutionary circumstances of maybe some sort of convergent evolution. So we can think of cooperation as a general strategy, but each of these instances you're talking about aren't causally linked to one another. Could, could you say um, which of those models you're, you're gesturing at? Uh, I don't think that's necessary on the same genetic base. So I think that cooperation is arise uh, pretty much in all different uh, uh, phyla and in many different ways. Even in social insects, it arises independently at least uh, 17 times. So when there are problems, uh, pretty much organisms always try to cooperate and they able to. Because if they don't, they just disappear. Because if you compare the group that cooperate with the group that doesn't, you know, it's not like they have to cooperate. But if you don't, and we would just wipe down. So uh, it's logic for me to think that can be many, many ways of cooperating, many meaning of cooperating, and that's important as well. You can cooperate, you know, holding, you know, putting very close together other organs to defend, or like, you know, just helping to spread. So there are two different mechanisms that they will need. It's depending a lot also on the environment. environment. So sure. I didn't actually talk about that, but that is a strong uh, selective pressure as well. Um, you're right, I talk about microorganisms and insects. I made a jump, I allowed myself a jump, but that we still don't have it because, as I said in the end, we're still not, we're still not capable to fully understand the, li the linkage between gene and cultural behavior, cultural behavior that can be in humans, mm -hmm. but you know, also in some animals, so. Maybe another way to ask the question that I wanted to ask was, Whenever I'm asking you to speculate here, yeah. but when we start to find better ideas of the genetic origins of cooperative behavior in human beings, how long, how old do you think those particular genes are? Do those go back far past primates? They go very, very far back? Or are they um, something that developed independently through um, selective pressures more recently? So most of the primates, if they're wrong, they are, they are pretty much social, they live in group. Yeah. So when we talk about non-social animals, you have to think about bear, for example. They're absolutely social. And um, so I know I don't know many examples of primates that just live by themselves. They they meet, they mate, and they live again. That's the concept of not being social. So pretty much all I know about chipbones uh, of chimps uh, or gorilla, they all live in small group, usually highly related to each other, but. Uh, so for what I know, I think that's definitely at that primates level. So unless someone have other information, at least the primates that are closer to us. Like right 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 yes. Yeah, right there, yeah. So definitely at least that's, uh, but you know, now we go into anthropological things, so I'm sure that. You wouldn't want to speculate any farther back than that. Well, if you're farther back, so, you know, we, we evolved from a small mammal, from, and rodents kind of like so you just you can just go down I mean I cannot I cannot definitely tell you a time scale but I mean we are millions also because you know there they may be some stage in which it was convenient to be cooperative some stage that it wasn't so these genes can go um, come and go and maybe different primates they have different set of genes because they have different solution uh, for the problem that they have so once again kind of link to the previous question 
not necessarily. It's one group of genes and then it's all monophyletic. So it can be just a different branch can up or go. Is that like sociality in insects? That is the one we actually have more information about that. So. Thank you. Okay, I have a question here. Right. So I was wondering about um, punishment and <coughs> the, the amoebas and the bacteria when there's cheaters, do they have a any way to identify them and punish them? Yeah, no, sorry, I have to skip to that because, you know, of course, if I have to talk uh, all this in single table and take uh, enough time. So, yes, for example, for dictyostelians, that is one example I know, I know the best, uh, um, we found that uh, when you are a cheater, usually you have a cost associated to being a cheater. So it's not true all the time. But you have what we call a pleiotropic uh, effect that uh, you're really good in something, but you pay that and so make you cripple in other situations. So in, the situation, in this lab <coughs> condition, when we work, the cheater can really take over. But if you change a little bit the environment, they actually are much more handicapped. And that's going to be a control of that. The other one is also kin selection, the skin recognition. That is actually one of the most uh, investigated. That's I can recognize how related you are to myself, <coughs> and I can direct the effort in the social action and doing, depending on how related you are or not, and that's what wasps do very well. So there are several mechanisms. That doesn't mean that cheating doesn't exist. It's a pretty much like an arm race. There's going to be always cheating, pretty much, because every organs will always try to get the much you can. And there will be pretty much always way to combat. But when there is no way to combat, the, the species will just go extinct. I mean, as simple as that. It's not that there must be a method. It's just that if we found it, they just die. I mean, as simple as that. So. Okay, uh, Matt Bound. Uh, I have the punishment question as well. Okay. So, no further detail on the punishment? Um, I just wanted a few examples. Thanks. Okay. Uh, right, we'll move on. Uh, over here. <coughs> um, is it ever observable that cooperation is one of the forces which affects the effective population size of relatively simple? Absolutely. So, <coughs> let's say, so in beers, for example, or in uh, also wasp founders, many. So if you start, for example, a nest, and you're two individuals, you have a much higher success if you were one, or if you, if you are three, you have even higher success. Is that what you, you were asking, more or less? There's a definite correlation. In certain environment, of course, in certain condition, but um, it's quite um, repeatable, so definitely there is, uh, there is always a usually an optimus. So if there are too many, there's gonna start to be conflict, because uh, most of the time when you have organisms, you have a hierarchy, you have an alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and uh, the, the longer is the chain, usually the most conflictual became. And so that's put it down. So they're really nice works done in birds. That is sometimes the optimal number of, um, you know, to make a nest with helpers. Because sometimes you have helpers from the generation that come and help you do the nest. They were, uh, they were your daughters. It's about, I don't remember, five, something like this. And if there were four, you would be more disadvantaged. If there were seven, there would be too many. So there's definitely, and this change for every organism, change uh, sometimes inside the same species, sometimes even different places. In Borneo can be one thing, and in New Zealand, or you know, in Madagascar can be a different things. but <laughs> definitely there is a correlation between the two. Okay. Um, I had a question, this occurred early on, it was about spores. Yes. So the, um, 
So what I was curious about, and I mean, this might be a naive question, is this. So, the, as I understand it, the microorganisms form spores to protect themselves. Um, spores itself is done to protect, to protect the cell. Not only to protect, it's actually when you get spores is, the, um, is a stage that helps you to... Like you put, you put yourself in a space capsule and you just get thrown in the space until right. you reach another, um, another planet to germinate right. pretty much. So it's a, it's a moment of stress, high stress, that uh, they make the cells to go through change, they become spores, and right. they wait until uh, they get dispersed. So they can, they can associate all together for protection also because mm -hmm. maybe they, have, they increase the chance to be dispersed by insects or something like that. So what I was wondering about was this, was the ones on the outside, so you get less protection value than the ones on the inside, right? But it's not really protection, because protection by what? Because once well, they're spores, yeah. once they're spores, they are pretty much resistant to acid, uh, to oh, desiccation. Okay. Spores are really, really tough. It's really mm. difficult to, to, to get eliminated. So it's pretty much just the concept of, uh, unless someone eats them, of course. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, I don't know much about it's uh, spores or bacteria. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, to get together so we can get dispersed with higher efficiency. So okay, so it's only about dispersed, it's not about protecting Pretty much. the story. Okay. Well, well, I, do you have an idea? I mean, even there, you, you might think that the ones on the outside have a greater likelihood of being dispersed, you know, further. So well, they, they're really small, I mean, compared to a leg of, a, of its set. So, okay. so, for example, this protein body, they are visible by eye, the one on the lift, you see them, they are really yellow. If you just touch with a with toothpick, they just all collapse, so there is not really a rigid structure. So I don't, I can't think of any, any adaptive uh, meaning of I mean, nature can be anything, but you know. I, I guess what we're getting at is this. I mean, there's a problem about cheating that yeah. you've identified, and uh, rightfully so. But there's also a problem about people or organisms getting differential benefits from cooperating. Um, and we're just kind of curious because I mean this this happens all the time with human cooperation. Some benefit more than others. So um, you know what what goes on at the um, uh, micro level? The, these sort of problems. So um, once again, we have to go on a general concept. Once again, maximization of individual fitness. Of course, there are you know. It is a sample. I mean, we can go microorganism, or we can think about lions or wolves. You know, there's you always one that eats the most. That is the, the alpha male, for example. Mm. And of course, what will happen is that uh, he will uh, have more offspring. So he does he does so because uh, has uh, better quality. Let's say better hunting skill, or better, you know, if the bacteria produce more enzyme or whatever. If the lion is easy to understand. So is the next generation of population, there will be more lines that are similar to the father, and so they're better, and uh, until the situation changes. So it, it is what it changed, it changes the frequency of the population. So yes, so once you get more of these cooperation benefits, you, you will have just more brood in the population for the next generation. So your behavior will be more common. Do you, do you see what I mean? So yes, yeah, so they are different. So they don't have to cooperate exactly the same. Usually right. the better one, the, the better one is the one that we, the wins. So that's normal mm -hmm. for all the parts. It's pretty much the basic of natural selection. So you, if you are the fittest, you behave better. You just go to the next generation in a higher frequency. 
Right. Makes sense. Well, you might see that the um, getting a, a lesser benefit from cooperation is a motivation to become a cheater. You see what I mean? Sometimes you can. Sometimes yeah. uh, lots of insects, for example, they are forced because you know, as I answered, <coughs> linked to the question before, nesting. Uh, if you are a wasp, for example, and you start in your nest, a single wasp has eighty percent of chance to die in forming your nest. If you are two or three, the nest almost surely will, will get to the spring. So sometimes if you by yourself, even if you get very little benefit, it's more convenient to be in a situation when you can eventually become alpha or or get higher. So there is a it's very complicated the entire field. It's not like you know win or lose. There is also sometimes it's also better be in the middle, for example. You know, there is a lot of study that say the beta the beta lion. Why I always talk about lions? But it's, uh, it's actually get enough benefit because the alpha has a much shorter lifespan because get challenged all the time. So reproduce much more in the beginning and live for shorter. So there's, you know, right. okay. where do you really see things that's... Uh, right. Any So A cheats on B, B on C, and A can, can cheat on C. So actually there is an a, a ability of cheats or, or a tendency to be cheated. So actually exists. And, uh, but there also be found conflict. So when you mix together two and one cheat on each other, for example, on the slide stage, they found out that they move, uh, you remember the little uh, slide thingy? Yeah, yeah. You know? And so if, uh, if it's just one group of cells, it move further, there are two, so that seems like because there is a competition inside it. Of course, that's all these. Every time you have competition, you have a cost, and this goes, to, you know, on the entire mechanism. There are some cheaters actually that uh, by themselves they are not able to fruit at all. They don't fruit in the fruiting body. They just fruit the fruiting body where they're together with others, and this point they go just straight to the to the spores. Of course, these are just generated in the lab. You can't find in the in the soil because they happen at the they left by themselves, they will never be able to survive. But um, yeah, there's definitely. Did I answer the yeah, question? Yeah, about yeah, okay. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll make this the very last question. Just a quick question. Um, going back to the single gene that you said uh, promoted cooperation and if it was mutated, the lymphoma. Yeah. Can you describe simply how it did that? What What was the mechanism by which it brought about cooperation? So, so we found genes that we know that once you eliminate, they, they produce cheaters, right? So the mechanism is quite complex, actually, and there are something like, you know, I have about 80, but and each of them pretty much have a different genetic pathway. So, I mean, I can, do you want to refer to, to the amoeba just in general? Uh, well, in general. The point that in general we can do these things because each gene, um, as we said before, each set of 
<coughs> Chigene um, code for a set of solutions that are pretty much designed for that organism. So the gene that's a noise responsible for cheating behavior in ichthyostelium, I'm sure in bacteria will be most likely completely different things. But they can, the point is that, one of the questions that I had, like, when I, I found a lot of cheaters, would be all doing the same thing? So there is some one behavior that's one pathway, that we call that, you know, one that's uh, cause, is, is, is on the straight line for cooperation, and you can interrupt in any way. We found them not. Cheating can be all different way. They can cheat because one can stop the other cells to go into the spores. One can produce more spores. One can force to produce more stock cells. One can kick the cells out. One can eat them. There are so many mechanisms. Because it seems like the problem can be attacked, the cooperation can be attacked by many, many different uh, points of view. And that makes everything much more complicated. So. And yet it's not only one gene. Sorry? Yet you'd still identify the single gene. Uh, yeah, 80 of those. Yeah. Mm. Once, so we know, we, and we know exactly which gene because we can uh, reproduce exactly creating the same, uh, called knockout, just a destruction of the genes. Uh, in human, most likely will not. When this happens in human, most likely we get, I guess, cancer is one of the, of the things that it can happen. But uh, the point is that microorganism uh, is immediate. The uh, gene expression, phenotype, I mean, it's like the way they look is pretty much immediate. You know, for humans, especially behavior, is a completely different thing. They're, Many, many more level that they have to go through. So, this is a point of clarification. What do you mean by you have 80 different genes mutating? Any one of those 80 produced one, one in each individual. So, I have okay. eight individuals, so okay. each is strain, and but just okay. each one has so one, one gene mutated, not eight at a time. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, it was 80 different genes, but only one mutation was necessary. Yeah. No, no, they're not. They're all in different chromosomes. Okay. They are really, they're really widespread. And some, you know, they go in, a, in, in a ligase, some, you know, ubiquitin. I mean, it's just, it's a really, 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 really different things. So thank you very much. <laughs>